Welcome to Fick Focus, where Bloomberg Intelligence fixed income, credit currency, and commodity strategists and analysts discuss their short and long-term views on debt markets and issuers. Now, here's the Bloomberg Intelligence Fick Research Team. Hello, everyone, and welcome back once again to the State of Distress Debt Edition of the Fick Focus podcast series where we focus on the happenings in the U.S. stressed and distressed credit and, of course, bankruptcy markets to the extent that there are any. Uh, and maybe we're finally getting a little bit of turn in that uh, weather there. I am your host, Noel Hebert, and joining me today, May 9th, is Bloomberg Intelligence's very own senior distressed credit analyst, Bill Brindell. And uh, joining us once again, happily, Eliza Ronald-Tannen of Bloomberg News. So uh, welcome, both of you. Uh, hope all Thank has you. been well. Yeah, good stuff. Uh, <laughs> so listen, I mean, before we dive right into sort of the, the, the goings on, and I think there's some really interesting stuff this month. I mean, just a quick recap from my side, uh, you know, April was a pretty sloppy month once again for April. And I think, you know, the two things that really come out to me in terms of the high yield market, and Phil, you can certainly build upon this, you know, we got in four straight months uh, of consecutive declines here to start. 2022. And, and that's not something we see a lot in the landscape of high yield. In fact, we've only seen it twice before going back uh, to 1980. And, you know, certainly the way that rates and spread are kind of behaving early on the start of May, it looks like we might get for the first time ever five consecutive monthly declines. And that's certainly feeding into your universe. Uh, so, Phil, what, what, what did we get out of your landscape in April? Hi, Noel. Th yeah, thank you very much. And actually, that's one of the things that I also noticed. And it, it, it's kind of interesting because uh, we don't really like give our recaps and view reviews uh, until this podcast. And uh, um, I, I, it's, it's, it was a big that that was a really interesting aspect of uh, a recent change in view that I've had. Um, you know, the, just to give an overview, the distress ratio is at 2.7 percent. It ended April at or it ended March at uh, 2.1%. So it was actually a pretty sizable move up. And it's the highest distress ratio that we've had for quite some time. Uh, recall the low for this cycle was put in in October at 1.8%. And, you know, as we look at these credit cycles, uh, you know, in distressed debt, um, they typically end with massive surges in distressed supply. And the surge can often last months. It doesn't necessarily have to be as short as the last one we had, which was basically, you know, just one month. Or you could argue it was from September to the end of March of 2020. But, you know, most of that move was really just in March. Um, and, and so one of the things I, I look for uh, when we're coming off of these big supply strike, big supply uh, spikes is a uh, is a period where supply is really coming down. So three straight months of decline before I favor just getting long into the high yield credit uh, market. And we saw that occur in June of 2020 uh, when April, May and July, June all saw declines. And those cycles would typically last between 22 and 45 months before lows and distress supply show up. And so that's what I was looking for. I was looking for this, you know, low that would probably start around April of this year. And I thought we were actually going to hit new distress lows off of the seasonal strength. We haven't had that. In fact, and that's that's that gets to your point. 
we've had basically distressed supply go higher. We've had distressed returns go uh, remarkably lower in months where they're typically positive. And so that that's made me sort of revise my view. And, you know, I, I do think that we've kind of hit our distress supply back in October when it hit 1.8%. And I think the surge is probably ahead of us now. Yeah, I think one of the things that's really interesting to me, certainly about the, the high yield market more broadly, right, is, is that, you know, while it was a struggle through the first quarter this year, like, you know, January, February, March, you know, a lot of the underperformance or the, the lack of performance out of high yield was really rates driven, right? You didn't really see it in spread and where you got a little bit of spread widening, it was really, you know, underperformance for the higher quality paper because everybody was shedding duration. You know, one of the things that we've definitely been seeing over the last, you know, few weeks, if not uh, four or five weeks, is that you're starting to see that sort of spread, uh, you know, bleed out happen from the lower quality paper, which to me is usually indicative that, okay, now we've actually got the risk off part of the cycle. And so you've got sort of a combo planner, platter of, of sort of higher rates and uh, sort of the riskier parts of the curve underperforming. And I think that sort of gives rise to, you know, a number of concerns, but a lot of that feeds into, you know, maybe uh, to your point, Phil, that maybe we are sort of at a point in the cycle. Um, I want to bring in, uh, you know, you know, certainly want to elaborate this, but I want to bring Eliza in here because you have the opportunity to to hang out at uh, or virtually hang out at Milken last week. And it sounds like maybe there are some takeaways, uh, you know, in terms of the distress landscape there. So what do you what did you hear? What are you thinking or what are people thinking about where this market's going right now? Yeah, people talked a bunch at Milken about just their predictions for when this long-awaited next distress cycle will hit in earnest, and they were a bit reserved in their predictions. So they weren't expecting, you know, I think they're perhaps less willing than others to assume that um, a huge uh, crash that'll that'll create a lot of distress debt is going to happen soon. They were trying to be more realistic and predicting it'll be about 12 months and really emphasizing that before we get the stress debt, we have to have stressed debt and that there's not even much of that yet. Uh, so, and to the point of you know, the concerns about inflation and they were really on this particular panel about distressed debt, the panelists were asked to weigh in really on whether the Federal Reserve was doing the right thing, whether it will be able to rein in inflation and whether it was doing the right thing in order to do so. Um, and they were, you know, really optimistic, if you could call it that, about the Fed's ability to stop inflation if it really chooses to. <laughs> so, you know, one of the I, guys I mean, said, I, I think it's, it's, you know, that's an interesting one, right? Because it really, you know, when it comes to the central bank, it really does break sharply into two camps in terms of people that think, you know, the Fed's on top of it. I mean, and then there's the other side, which actually thinks that, you know, the way that inflation is being driven, right, it's kind of more of a supply issue than a demand issue, that the Fed really doesn't have much to do with it. And it's funny because I was listening, obviously, to the FOMC a week ago, and it's even interesting to me the, the takeaways that people have because they also broke into two camps. I kind of came away thinking, you know, the Fed's trying to slow walk this thing. They're trying to do as much as they can not to sort of accelerate the nervousness in the marketplace and ultimately get, you know, left further behind the curve. But there are other people that thought, oh, they're being appropriately aggressive and signaling all these incremental hikes, et cetera. So it's really an interesting dynamic. But 
regardless of where you think the Fed is in the curve, I think one of the, the things that I'd like to kind of put to both of you that I think will be very interesting here is you think about the leveraged loan market, which is, you know, trillion six or whatever it is. Uh, and then you think about leveraged loans or companies with leveraged loans or private companies within the high yield market, which is 30 or 40 percent, you know, and that floating rate space is going to get really problematic uh, as these rates move higher. I mean, you're talking about, you know, billions and billions of incremental interest costs as these floating rates reset off of, you know, a lot of them use the one or the three month LIBOR number. And it's not like your floating rate borrowers tend to be you know, your, your best and your brightest, so to speak, in terms of credit worthiness. So do we worry or do you worry either one of you in terms of what the impacts of higher rates are going to be on this universe? Uh, I'm I'm worrying about a lot of things, and that 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 is one of them. Um, you know, I I I definitely see. You know, it, it's funny because as um, you know, I did take a look at the distressed supply moving up. It was it was a fairly small move. It was only nine billion. And actually, I have uh, I have another screen where I had my you know where I want to get long the credit cycle, and then when I want to get out of the credit cycle. And one of the signals that I use for like getting out of the credit cycle is a is a big move up. Nine billion didn't quite cut it. it you know, I look for like a twenty five billion dollars increase in supply. Um, you know, when I'm like, all right, time to get out. And so, but the, the one thing that was interesting, this was a broad. It was across all the sectors except for healthcare and. And even energy made a new high in distress. And I actually think energy is going to be a little Teflon during this te- uh, distress cycle because, you know, with high energy prices, and I haven't heard a good per- a good reason why energy prices are going to come down any, you know, for the next 12 months. Um, I-, I see that as being a real problem. And that worries me more than uh, the rising interest rates. But, you know, you've got the higher inflation, compression compressing margins. You had consumer staples, the distress ratio there jumped significantly higher. And if you think about what that is, that's supermarkets where they're, they, these are low margin businesses, high cost wages, uh, rising inflation. So you've got a lot of issues where, um, you know, you, you could potentially see distress. So, but rising interest rates, we're, I, I'm seeing that already in the, in the, first quarter when I take a look at, you know, some of the pro forma interest numbers that we're looking at for the next 12 months, it's going up uh, fairly significantly. Um, And then on top of that, June through November is credits week part of the calendar. And, you know, we've already seen that it couldn't really turn in a good part of the calendar. Now, maybe that, you know, maybe we see that now, maybe we've already had it, but I tend to think that, uh, we're going to see uh, this be more uh, lighter fluid to a to a fire. And, and I guess, you know, Eliza, to bring you back in here, I mean, and obviously maybe some people are sort of thinking along those lines because you're, you know, uh, you know, you're covering and sort of, uh, you know, referencing earlier on uh, prior to this call in terms of, you know, you've got some people that are actually starting to launch new money into this marketplace. I mean, obviously, <laughs> I mean, it's sort of like the perennial show, right? Companies come out, they do these big new distress funds, and then there's nothing to invest in, and they end up all sort of like chasing sort of better quality triple Cs or something. But but we do have you know people starting to to think about putting more money into this space, do we not? Absolutely, and you're seeing them really try to go for very nimble mandates because they recognize that they might raise the cash and then be quite constricted or or stunted in what they're able to find to put it to use. So. 
one of the funds that I reported on launching this week is from BlackRock, and it's a they call it Capital Solutions Strategy. It's a credit opportunities fund, and it's a lot about uh, almost unilateral. I think the majority of the loans in there are unilateral from BlackRock. It's essentially direct lending slash rescue financing slash the mandate's quite broad. And you're seeing that that's sort of a crucial element to fundraising right now because no one wants to get stuck having to return that money because they couldn't find anything to do with it. Um, And then another fund recently, uh, well, neither of these funds have launched. They're in marketing. And so the other one was Nighthead and Sitaris. They had a very interesting um, travel and hospitality and uh, leisure fund raised in 2020, which went on to buy Hertz out of bankruptcy. So that got a lot of attention, was a quite good move on their part. And now that I mean, that's that's like some pretty great marketing. If you were, I mean, Hertz is certainly a name that we've covered pretty extensively uh, in this podcast in the past, and I'm sure Phil could still regale us if we asked them to. But but yeah, I mean, that's when you hit one like that. I suppose you know you kind of buy some credibility. Yeah, it's hard not to try for a repeat performance uh, when you have that in your track record. Yes, and. Uh, to the point, and you know, I think if anything, that this new fund is skewing a little bit more towards hospitality instead of travel, uh, instead of travel per se. So it's, I think, going to be a bit more cruise ships, hotels, but of course, they try to stay quite agile too. So they're going to go wherever the opportunity is. Um, but to the point about, you know, the floating rate environment um, kind of posing some doom for some of these high yield um, junk companies who have really put all their eggs into the leverage loan basket. And they, some of them have no subordinate debt. They just have billions upon billions of senior secured leverage loans, which of course kind of undermines the purpose of them. But they of not only are they going to struggle to, you know, pay that interest or manage that interest expense, but because of that, because of that struggle, I've been talking increasingly to market participants about the way that that pain is feeding into this creditor on creditor violence trend, so to speak, these sort of aggressive asset spinoffs or asset grabs, collateral grabs on the part of lenders or spinoffs on the part of the issuers. Um, We saw it, we discussed it in Encora last time, this last week was about Envision Healthcare and a very similar scenario where new lenders came in and their loan is going to be backed by the collateral that used to be for everyone else. And so <laughs> we might lead to litigation. We'll see what happens. But I've been talking to people saying that the rising rate environment will only exacerbate that trend because people are going to be getting desperate and both on the on the company side and on the lender side. Yeah, I mean, before we bring you into that, Phil, because I think that's sort of a really interesting point. I think part of the complicating factor there as well is... Um, you know, given that I think, you know, the marketplace bias, certainly in high yield, is that inflation is going to be a little bit more uh, persistent. I mean, we've seen the the corporate market or the fixed rate funding market, you know, it's not completely shut down, but it's been very, very quiet. I mean, obviously, last year was a record year in terms of new issuance, but this year we're down sort of 70 percent year on year, nearly three quarters of a, uh, in terms of total share. Uh, in very low by historic standards. And, and I think you're seeing, you know, people kind of demanding more concessions when people are trying to float paper there. 
And so, you know, the, you know, the loan market's really sort of been the, the only place to do business if you're looking to borrow. But, Phil, I know we, like, you know, to Eliza's point, we did talk about it a little bit last month within core, but when you see these sort of, uh, to borrow the phrase, creditor on creditor violence, which I don't know, sets up as like maybe a funny sitcom or something, but <laughs> when, you, uh, when you see that sort of behavior, does it sort of give you any sense of, you know, where we are in the life cycle, or is it just, you know, sort of very uh, esoteric in your view? One of, one of my observations is uh, creditor on creditor violence is one of those things that you can tolerate in capital structures where there's a lot of cash flow. Like a lot of times you see it in the mega mega cases because, you know, when you when you get when you get these like, uh, you know, companies making a billion dollars of operating cash flow and you just have an incredibly bad balance sheet like Intel set, for example, um, Creditors can like bring out every legal argument and you can see, uh, you know, a lot of these things d dwell and, you know, professional fees, uh, you know, it, restructuring professionals know credits that they can milk and when they can't milk credits and they actually have to worry about just getting paid. So as we go down into the credit cycle, so a lot of these private levered loan uh, situations, which we can't even cover because their numbers aren't necessarily out there. Um, you know, if they're actually not making operating cash flow, these capital structures are smaller, the creditor on creditor violence, before long, they're going to be fighting for, you know, a really shrinking pie to till the point where, you know, maybe I get 90% of this morsel that, it, it, you know, it, is, is sitting there. So you really, it's, uh, the creditor on creditor violence, you'll find it in these situations where there's a ton of cash flow. And people are, you know, jostling for the, the bigger share of the pie really makes the difference for the returns. Um, if it's a shrinking pie, which I think we might see in the next cycle, where some of these companies just aren't going to be worth as much. And, you know, there actually has to be some real operational turnarounds. So that I, I, I guess that, you know, credit on credit, you know, guys have always been what's the most economic thing for me to do, uh, you know, in this circumstance. And if that sometimes means reaching over to the guy, you know, across the table or to the, my right or left uh, of, you know, the negotiating table, um, you know, sometimes that was what folks did. But, you know, in this case, uh, I, I think we're probably going to see, especially with the smaller deals, it's going to be less and less of that and more of more of we're going to try and fix this company. Yeah, and then I guess it becomes a question when you kind of engage in that behavior, are you fixing the company? I mean, obviously, the preference in recent years has been to try and fix the company outside of bankruptcy. Um, but do we get, in addition to maybe incremental distress, do we actually get a real wave of bankruptcy? Because that seems like, you know, something with the exception of the quick blurb in 2020 that, you know, we haven't gotten a, I think, 2018, maybe we got some with the energy sector and that sort of thing, uh, you know. I guess the marketplace has it changed at all, or, or do we just think it's, you know, this is, you know, more evolutionary versus revolutionary? I've seen some charts where cash is still fairly significantly high on these balance sheets. So I have a feeling that we're going to see the distressed markets, uh, you know, kind of perk up well ahead of the default cycle. And, you know, we're going to see these companies take their time. Uh, maybe they do out of court restructurings. But, you know, one of the things that I, I think is misconstrued a lot is that um, it's only maturities 
when you see companies restructure. And in reality, I think what you see companies restructure when they see that uh, it, it's they're not working for anything but the creditors, that the, the equity really is in the equity is in uh, some debt holders hands and that, uh, you know, the company's hopelessly insolvent and they'll pick their spots, restructure it and and move on from there. So I, I definitely think, you know, look, if you play things out, yeah, it, it, we're pro- we probably will have a default cycle that, you know, maybe is probably more 2023 than 2022. But will we have some folks who wrap it up early and look to go in 2022, probably after September? That that seems that seems likely to me. So, so that sounds like it's pretty consistent then with maybe what Eliza was hearing at Milk and Yeah, Eliza. I think so. Time timeline wise, yes. And you know, another point that they were making on that panel was just not so much that just back to the inflation point. Not so much that um, it was already being handled or or on the on track to be, but. To be fair, it was much more of an extreme sentiment that if necessary, I think the quote was actually, if they need to do what Volcker did and choke out markets because inflation is out of control, they'll do that. So, of course, that is not suggesting that inflation might be able to be tamped down in a, in a moderate way, but rather that the Fed might tank the entire market in order to do it. So that's really not ideal. Yeah, I, and I, I mean, I mean I've, I've heard sort of that line of logic. I just, you know... I, I don't see Powell as sort of a Volcker figure, right? I mean, to yeah. me, he's a, a little more Arthur Burns or maybe a Miller than he is a Volcker, right? And Because I, I think the only way you get that real sort of Volcker action is if inflation leads to the sort of displacement of the existing Fed head. So you have somebody that comes in with that mandate to just manage inflation. I don't, you know, given, you know, how Powell sort of managed 2018, uh, you know, and even the way they manage this latest rate hike, I, I just I don't think he's that guy uh, or that person that's going to sort of make that move. But, you know, again, I guess to each their own, uh, maybe pivoting the conversation here into sort of some specific names. You know, Phil, I know somebody that uh, or, or a company that you just sort of recently sort of kicked off on is GWG. So I'm not really familiar with that one. Uh, so maybe you can uh, walk me through and, and by extension, walk uh, all of our listeners through. Sure. It's fascinating company. GWG Holdings is a um, so so what they have is they have an asset of life insurance portfolios and of life insurance policies. And against that, they have liabilities that are really interesting. First off, it's a public stock, um, but the public sh- the number of public shareholders might actually be less than the 27,000 um holders of their L bonds it's a, a that provide liquidity they sell they uh sell them through a broker network of about 100 brokers um and they're marketed to high net worth individuals um but it's a fascinating uh fascinating situation so get back to it, their, their liabilities, their capital structure is there's about $382 million of portfolio financing. These are facilities that are secured by the portfolio of uh, policies. Um, there's $367 million of seller trust, seller trust bonds uh, that, you know, someone contributed a company called Beneficial, ben, uh, Beneficial, 
and it's called Ben for short. And that went to thankfully because uh, I think we'd all struggle to pronounce it. <laughs> and then, um, and then there's 1.3 billion dollars of these L bonds that had, you know, are spread across 27,000 uh, customers. So this company just filed for bankruptcy in April. Um, and just to give you an idea what this portfolio is, it's really a portfolio of these life insurance policies that were basically sold into that GWG holdings purchase. So it gave these people a liquidity solution for a life insurance policy, either that they were looking to monetize for whatever reason. Um, and these thousand individuals who it's on is average age of 83, life expectancy of 6.8 years, and each with a, comes with a $1.8 million payout on average. Um, well, I, I got to say, when I'm 83, I hope I still have a life expectancy of 6.8 <laughs> years. But <laughs> That's on these portfolios. Um, at least that's what they said in, in, in their uh, regulatory filings. And then, but unlike, you know, uh, necessarily a, a portfolio with bonds where you already paid for it, you have to make ongoing policy premiums. And so, you know, for that portfolio, which is about $1.8 billion, dollars of uh payouts you know that you're expecting call it seven years from now um it, it's requiring policy premiums of 70 million dollars and so that puts a you know even if you were just going to like run out to portfolios you need to make those payments as well and so to the extent that there's a mismatch between um you know when people are actually dying and when you have to make these policy premiums you need to fund that. And they've been funding it. They've been funding the growth uh, through these L bonds and then also these policy premiums through these L bonds. And the L bonds have about a maturity of just about three years. So you have a mismatch there. Yeah. Anyway. So it's, so it's mostly, so it's not necessarily a statement on solvency. It's a statement on sort of a duration relationships, right? So you, you kind of, you got near-term obligations, but you got long-term assets or intermediate-term assets, and they're and not then, generating enough kind of cash flow to service the front end, or is there uh, is there a question in terms of the underlying quality of the assets as well, such that people are concerned about the recovery as well? So that's where things get really interesting. And, you know, this is where maybe I'll go into the dirtier side of this situation. Um, the SEC launched an investigation into the marketing of these L bonds. Um, and these brokers all of a sudden got very chilled, you know, chilled the interest in selling them to your customers. The SEC investigation is ongoing. Um, and that basically put the kibosh on issuing L bonds. And that's what's caused uh, the company's liquidity shortfall. On top of that, they have two. The, the other assets that the company has are two, uh, two, two companies, Beneficent, we've discussed. And then there's another one, Foxo Labs. They think that they can monetize these assets, but not in a fire sale. Um, and, and so the company filed for bankruptcy because of this liquidity shortfall. Um, and what was interesting about it was that they were looking for a, a big dip. The, the court was very uncomfortable because they were only filing uh, so, sort of the whole holding companies and not the actual entities, not the special purpose vehicles that actually hold the policies. And so, um, you know, the, the and, and on top of that, you also had Aiken Gump, who represents the, uh, the indenture trustee for the L bonds. 
saying that they were uncomfortable with the way management was operating because they had no discussions uh, regarding a restructuring prior. And then you also had the holder of the seller trust bonds uh, had counsel there too, Kirkland and Ellis, who's typically a debtor's representative, but here they were representing a creditor. Um, and both sets of lawyers said they, they were uncomfortable with sort of management's, uh, management's uh, you know, being a good steward here. So, so, so what's our, what's our path forward here? I mean, this is, I mean, it sounds like sort of a muddy soup. Um, you know, I, I don't know what sort of like, do we have a sense in terms of timeline or what our expectations are? I, you know, I, I, I think one of the things you'll make, you'll see here is that they'll make sure that they have liquidity solutions for the, uh, for the policies, because I, I think that's in all the stakeholders interest, um, I do think, given there there's all kinds of intertwined transactions, you know, amongst the equity here and some of the valuing up of uh, assets, I I wouldn't be surprised if you see an examiner appointed or at least a committee will be doing deep investigation. Um, but in parallel, I fully expect that there will be a marketing exercise here. These assets probably need to be in other people's hands and. You know, it's once once if you can crystallize the value, if if you can get a fair price for these assets, you can do all the investigations that can take time and they can do that in the side with cash setting and escrow as opposed to necessarily trying to operate the company as well as well. But we're going to see there's a final dip hearing uh, the latter part of May um, and uh, it's it's bound to be an interesting one. Uh, what's a little disappointing is I don't think there's much ways that, uh, you know, institutional investors can participate in this unless they're, you know, looking to fund the company directly. Um, there's the, the public equity, uh, you know, clearly is behind every, everything that we've talked about here. Um, and the L bonds are, I imagine, pretty illiquid. Um, we did have, you know, a number of the L bonds called in saying that their life savings were tied up in these uh, pieces of paper. It was a, it was a pretty emotional uh, showing in court. And, uh, you know, I, I, I think it made an impact on uh, judge is good for sure. So it, it's, so it's, it's going to be a com. I imagine we're going to see a lot of complexity, but you know, they're going to, they're going to, I imagine a lot of the steps to preserve the value of the assets are, are going to be done. So, so it's certainly one to, to watch and, and certainly kind of a unconventional, which is, I guess, sort of the bankruptcies that we've been seeing because you had that uh, that sort of Norwegian or whatever it was, airline play <laughs> months ago. Yes. So it seems sort of it's uh, much more of these sort of esoterica that's sort of making their way into the courts right now. So uh, speaking of maybe the other side of the uh, of the spectrum here for you is, is a Revlon. Uh, so that's a name. Are you feeling a little bit better about them? I'm I'm pretty excited about Revlon. Actually, it, it's... And I don't it, think anybody said that in probably the better part of two decades. So, so expound upon that. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it's, um, you know, the company just posted its highest EBITDA, $313 million on the back of a 50% improvement just in the quarter, um, you know, in, in EBITDA. It was, a, I think it went from, you know, it, it jumped to 58 million, I believe. Um, it's, it's just, uh, one of the things that you're seeing is, uh, 
you know, people are taking off their masks again and buying lipstick. Uh, Revlon, Revlon, the the segment Revlon itself, uh, sales were up twenty two percent over last year, um, and that's even with Omicron being in part of the first quarter. So uh, you're seeing dramatic improvement, and one of the things that we've been noticing for a few quarters is that you know even with lower sales, their EBITDA is beating pre-pandemic levels. And, and and so I think that goes back to when uh, they, the company had a, uh, uh, you know, they looked into the black abyss of the in May 2020 when, you know, they potentially looked at a filing. And they I, I think they, they came up with a uh, global growth accelerator program and really cut costs. And w- that's really showing up in the margins now. Um, now, all of that is is great. Their liquidity is still tight. Um, their second and third quarters is when they actually invest in their working capital. So that's 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 an ongoing concern. The cost of their debt is high. I mean, like with a capital H, um, they have first lien paper that pays 14 percent. Um, it's got a two percent pick. Uh, and, you know, a lot of this paper would be. You know, now they can actually start thinking. Maybe we can refinance this. I, I'm sure there's, you know, I, some make holes there. But um, the 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 creditors who, you know, put that in place in May of 2020 was, you know, there were really five big holders: Angelo Gordon, Aries, Oak Hill, King Street, and Glendon. Um, they bought the bulk of it, like I think over 80 percent of it, and. Um, and and it's 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 a sweet piece of paper. Then the, at the other end of the spectrum is the unsecured notes trading in thirty cents on the dollar. Um, my my thesis for this company or what it should do is that it should probably market itself. There's there's large cosmetic companies out there, and this would be a nice strategic consolidation. But ownership hasn't shown any willingness to do that since they've. I mean, you're just looking at the history here. They owned it in 1980, and they haven't sold it since. So, you know, it, it, it's a fascinating situation, but the they do have a little bit of wind in their sails right now. Bill, you bring up management when it comes to the willingness to, or ownership, that is, when it comes to willingness to sell. Um, I mean, I remember Ron Perelman being a big part of the story back in 2020 when things were very shaky. Uh, do you think that e- even if, he was willing to sell. Does does an owner like Perelman uh, turn off potential buyers? You know, given just the kind of potential volatility that he represents. So, so the the, the question becomes like right now, all he's doing is he's paying these first lien lenders with all of the free cash flow, and he's stretching. You know, I mean, arguably that could accrue to his equity, and instead, it's going out the doors. You know, to to these lenders, and so. You know, in effect, he, he he's kind of losing ownership in, of the business in terms of, you know, why we own companies is to take cash out of them. Um, and I, I think, you know, either you're going to do something dramatic to lower the cost of credit here, and maybe they wish, miss their window in terms of, you know, pulling off a of financing that now the markets are less less accommodating when, you know, if they were turning in these kind of quarters 
a year ago, maybe they would have already been looking at refinancing all of their uh, all of their debt. But you know, there there, there is it's it's a it's a problem credit if you're just looking to do piecemeal refinancings. That's why I, I think to some extent, you know, finding find, you know if you actually create created a marketing process where maybe you put the company out there to, um, you know, strategics, L'Oreal or Estee Lauder, you know, these companies that actually have much bigger multiples. And, you know, you look at this company now and it's, it's, it's leverage is still 11 times, but you could argue that the enterprise value is above that. And, um, you know, it's really a family affair at Revlon because, Perelman's daughter is CEO. I wonder if you think that that has contributed to maybe not being as forward looking with regard to kind of pivoting strategy and being willing to look outside the box and whether the legacy kind of ties them to doing some of their things the the old way that they always had and, and not and maybe that that's stopping now. Well, one of the things I look at is the the, the results and the results here have been very strong since uh you know she she's been in there um and i i just it's it's also possible that maybe they think you know a year from now their their ebitda is going to be up significantly higher and that would just lead to a, perhaps a bigger equity check for mm-hmm. them if they can just create a band-aid for the next mm-hmm. year um all of that being said you still got your notes, Revlon unsecured notes are trading in the low 30s. So, you know, if if, if they're actually that constructive on their equity, um, you know, you, you can imagine where those unsecured notes might go if if, if that is the road that gets, you know, right. tracked. Yeah, so, definitely, definitely an interesting game and been interesting for many, many years. Uh, you know, the, the Perlman, you know, father-daughter duo thing certainly adds a dynamic. I think the other part of it, too, I remember back in the day, you know, the, the bigger names, like you had mentioned, Estee Lauder or L'Oreal, I think the, the problem for Revlon is that they're a little too middle market uh, in terms of those guys that have really focused on the premium. So you'd be looking more at sort of like a Cody or a Natura or one of those, which don't really necessarily have the capital wherewithal uh, and they're stuck in not necessarily the same boat as a Revlon, but a similar one. Uh, regardless, uh, you know, I want to be mindful of our listeners' time. Uh, so, so maybe, uh, Eliza, Phil, any last thoughts, words in terms of what we're looking for in, in the, the weeks to come? I know, Phil, you've got obviously GWG sort of on your radar. Eliza, is there something that, uh, that looks intriguing or, or sort of is coming about that, uh, you're thinking the next few weeks maybe we get clarity on in terms of what's happening in the stress distress landscape? I can't stop thinking about the Talon bankruptcy. You know, the chatter on that is goes in and out, but, um, you know, we've already reported that they're in talks about a dip loan. So it's going to be, in my opinion, really interesting to see what that looks like, partly because it's a bit counterintuitive to see a power company file for bankruptcy in, in a market like this. Of course, we understand that uh, I think all indications point to talent getting itself in a bit of trouble with its hedge book, but I would love to know exactly to what, to the tune of what uh, dollar amount they, how, how deep they managed to dig themselves into a hole right there. And also, um, you know, it's River, Riverstone, I think is the name of the, the owner has been very quiet 
about its own intentions for what a restructuring or a bankruptcy for Talon will look like and whether it's going to really relinquish. If it's, if its plan is to relinquish that equity, it would be a little bit surprising because there's certainly a lot of value left in that company, as far as I can tell. And so to turn it over to creditors right now would would really be a loss for the sponsor. Yeah, and I guess maybe the, as of today anyway, maybe the crypto play looks a little less compelling. Right, I forgot so. about that. Yeah. So, all right. right. And, and, and Phil, from your side, any last thoughts? I'm looking to be surprised because, you know, it, it, it's... Surprise! It, yeah, no, it, 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 <laughs> you know, look, it, it, it's, as 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 we know, it's, you know... The, there's there's been a lot of uh, significant price changes and you know the inflation and you know some of these I, I guess I'm I'm just expecting some of these companies to really be caught off sides as uh, you know they start looking at things and uh, you know we'll we'll see I mean I I, I still am waiting you know we're ta- we're here we are in the you know I guess the sec start of the second week in May and. We got the anyone who hasn't posted earnings yet. It, you know they have their forty-five day window. This is usually when they've got nothing but bad news to provide. Um, <laughs> I, I'm still waiting, I guess, for Excella. I guess they're 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 going to be posting financials shortly. Um, those notes, I, I guess, have you know they did an exchange into a notes that was trading at sixty-four cents in December, and now those are in the thirties. So you know that that might be one that you know, we'll be hearing more about, but the surprises never stop coming. And oh, and I do think we're going to see in Diamond Sports Group, we're going to see some sort of distressed exchange offer for the unsecured notes there. They've got a billion dollars of liquidity and they they need to, they're, they're just, they've got time to play with uh, holders of notes there and put them further behind, uh, you know, try, try and push them to the bottom of, the, of a very, a very, very tall uh, debt stack. All right. So, so things to think about for sure with that. I want to thank all of our listeners for, for dialing in once again. Uh, We wish everybody as prosperous a May as possible. And uh, we look forward to uh, regaling you again uh, in the month to come. With that, thank you all. 